0: Welcome to Shadow Proof. I am your host, Todd Callahan. You can follow me on Instagram at Pastor Todd Callahan. You can download our app by searching your Google Play Store or your App Store for Ignite Church VT, or you can follow us online at IgniteChurchVT.com. We have an awesome episode, a great program today. You don't want to miss it. Do me a favor, share this podcast, share this episode, encourage people with what God is speaking and saying through Shatterproof. This is going to be an amazing moment. You don't want to miss it. I'll be right back with you. There's so much going on in culture right now, so many conversations going on about transgenderism, homosexuality, the whole LGBTQI plus agenda. Uh, People can't describe and define what a woman is, what a man is. There is so much uh, craziness in culture. And, And the more I think about it, the more I am reminded of how important it is for the people of God and for the church to really take their rightful place as it relates to their faith, as it relates to the truth of the Word of God, and not be persuaded by what they are hearing and experiencing in culture. And and I was reminded of a passage of Scripture in Ezekiel 22, and the Bible says, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. Her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, "'Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken.'" The people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and needy, and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land, so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire, Of my wrath, their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. You know, there are so many things as we as a Christian culture have to look at. And and right now we've got a community of transgenders, of homosexuals who are really taking the cultural narrative right now. And they're essentially saying to Christians, you either hate us or you agree with us. There is no in-between. You either hate us or you accept our lifestyle. And for the Christian, we don't hate them, but at the same time, we don't receive and accept their lifestyle. And in this culture, that is just a, a an, an indescribable concept and a precept for this culture that we live in, for those who are in living inside of that sinful, carnal nature. Uh, they, they cannot understand how it is that we can we can not agree with their lifestyle and yet still pray for them? How can how we can not agree with the way they're living their life and, and yet not hate them? And so I, I want to admonish you as this passage of scripture that I just read says it's important that we find a gap and we stand in it. So if we find a gap, we've got to stand in it. And we are in some interesting days in this generation. And I believe that God is so desiring the people of God, his church, to stand in the gap in the areas in this culture right now in 2023 where it is vital for us to speak into we've been through some interesting moments in the past several months and in the past year to be honest with you and we find ourselves trying to deal with a world that seems as though it's about to to come unhinged and, you know, I don't know if, if you've ever told God, you know, enough with this craziness, God, will you just do something? Will you just fix this thing, God? I've realized that it's important as God's kids to know how God does a thing, that God has called us to be uh, doxological, if you will, and, and Eucharistic, if you will, in our approach. And this has to be orthodoxy and orthoproxy, which means vertical and horizontal. It's logos and rhema, spirit and truth, head and and heart. The problem is that all of these things are not equal and are not equal in that you could ask a kid in Sunday school, where does Jesus live? And they will not tell you that Jesus lives in their head. They will always respond with Jesus lives in their heart. It is because Jesus is after your heart. And until Jesus gets your heart, you're faking it. Because until he gets your heart, your head learns principles, and you are trying to make yourself do something that you don't want to do. And so you've got to fake it. That's why uh, many times I tell our church, you know, when, when someone says, what religion are you? Don't say Christianity. Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is based on a relationship with Jesus Christ, with Jesus, the anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah. So when people say, you know, uh, describe to me what religion you are, religion is conforming to an outer code of conduct. And that's why Jesus could not stand the religious leaders of the day. They, they were desiring the law to be the utmost principled reality in someone's life and in someone's heart. And Jesus was saying, no, I want, I'm going to be that. I am the Messiah. I'm fulfilling this law. There has to be no more bloodshed. There will be uh, no more, uh, no more desire for anybody else to have to sacrifice any other animal, shed any other blood. I'm it. And, and the religious leaders of the day could not stand that. And so what happens is when we become so religious in our ideology and we're missing the heart that Jesus wants us to carry, we end up with churches that have westernized a book that is about the heart and a God that must be be known in the heart and a God that refuses to be categorized and figured out. I tell our church all the time, the only thing predictable about God is that he's unpredictable. And and many times I think, especially people that have been saved the majority of their life, and, and I think pastors and leaders have this fallacy as well, where we think we've got God figured out. We think we know God's next step. We've been serving God long enough. We've been in church long enough. We've been saved long enough. We figured out God. Listen, the only thing predictable about God is that he's unpredictable. And a God that resists being your subject matter to be placed under a microscope, like we can somehow figure him out. God says, I'll let I'll, I'll, I'll get your heart first and then teach you about the kingdom later. But until he gets your heart, you're faking it. And... I believe that in America today, we are experiencing a cycle. We're seeing a drug revolution, racial tensions, sexual revolution. It seems as though the 60s are coming back around again. I was not alive in the 60s, but from what I've read, what I've heard uh, from those that were, we're seeing that cycle repeated again. Despite the cycles that we're beginning to see repeated, I believe that cities can be won in the midst of all of this chaos that we are seeing in America. We're putting way too much hope in our political leaders. We're putting the answer to all of, the, all of the, the, the situations and circumstances in America. We are putting the solutions to those at the feet of the political representatives that we vote for. So we're either waiting for two years for it to be fixed or four years to, for it to be fixed instead of the people of God taking their rightful place and occupying the territory that God has called us to take and we be the answer to these problems. God has put every single one of us here on this earth to be an answer to a problem. And I believe that God is wanting to send the greatest revival and the greatest awakening that our generation has ever seen that will absolutely shake the foundation of cities and change the trajectory of our nation. Because I believe the churches are the salvation of our cities, and it takes a church to raise a village. I believe that our churches are are the ones that are going to win the hearts of people. And hear this in context, because you cannot win a city with dead, broke down, tired churches that are trying to fit something into their brain that really has to fit into the heart. And we've got some rowdy churches, you know, some, some churches that know how to uh, you know, warf- warfare in their praise and in their worship that aren't afraid to be kingdom preachers and kingdom churches that will open the word of God and preach it as it is, regardless of who it offends. But unfortunately, there are a lot of churches and there's a lot of Christians that don't like that kind of gospel because they have erected in their mind a Jesus of this culture that agrees with the way they want to live their life. So they serve a version of Jesus that they've created in their head. We've turned churches that have, that, have, that have not turned the gathering into a library. We, we, we have churches that have turned the gathering into a library and into a classroom. The New Testament church came to experience something and to figure it out as we went down the road. So when I step into a room, I've got to know that Jesus is in the building. I'm talking about churches that when they praise God, they actually make some noise. Some people that when they clap their hands, it sounds like torrential rain. I've begun to see that there's a trick going on because the enemy has tricked the church into calming down. I'll see videos on Instagram and videos on Facebook and, and other social media platforms, and it'll be, you know, a worship team on stage, and I mean, it'll it'll be uh, an on-fire worship set, and these guys are really, you know, giving everything they've got to, to stir up the atmosphere in that room, and then I'm looking at the people, and they're standing there with their hands down, hands in their pockets, some people with their arms crossed, you got a few people with their hands raised, and everyone's just staring and watching and we've turned the corporate worship experience, the corporate worship uh, moment that we're we're supposed to come together and 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 release the power of God as we worship him and magnify him and honor him. We've turned that into a, a an entertainment an entertainment service where we just where people just watch, observe and then leave but i believe there's a movement out there by which the church and a generation of pastors have matriculated through our systems and have been in, injected with the formaldehyde of unbelief to such a degree that they've told our churches we need to calm everything down and keep everything quiet i remember when i became a senior pastor of ignite church in williston vermont there there were people that ended up leaving our church because the worship just, we, we turned to the worship upside down. It was no longer a just go through the formality of worship and say, well, you've got 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I don't know how long worship's going to be. When people will say, well, how long's your worship service? I don't know. It could go 45 minutes, 50 minutes, 60 minutes, an hour and 10 minutes. I don't know. Whenever God releases us, we'll move on. And, and people couldn't, they didn't like the fact that uh, they didn't know when service was going to get out because it wasn't like clockwork. They didn't like the fact that um, our praise was was requiring and pulling on them to respond and actually participate, you know, uh, that our worship was engaging. It was requiring them to pull on heaven and heaven was requiring the people of God to, to release something in that atmosphere. We don't want anything to happen that we can't explain. So some pastors, unfortunately, will do everything they can do to control the atmosphere. We don't want anybody to wonder about us. Well, you can't have signs and wonders without somebody wondering. And so we have preachers that are preaching the word of God without the spirit that wrote the thing. And you say, well, millennials and Gen Zers don't like that kind of church and, and you know, and that kind of preaching and it scares them. How? How is this, how is, is your church, the kingdom preaching church? And I believe truly that we need some, you know, some hellfire and, and brimstone sort of messages uh, you know, we need those churches again. We need to put the fear of God in this culture. How is this, how, is, how, is, how are our churches, our kingdom churches going to scare this generation? They pay people to scare them. They, they're zombie crazy. They're werewolf and vampire crazy. They just love, uh, what is that thing, uh, that that show, uh, Walk, The Walking Dead? I'm, you know, from Orlando, Florida, is is where I've spent the majority of my life, and we we've seen Universal Studios advertise for Halloween Horror Nights for decades. It's packed with young people who are attracted to death, to fear, to wickedness, and you want to turn around and say the church is scary. And so while. Every spirit on assignment against this generation, most of our churches have become passive and you cannot defeat an aggressive enemy with passive people. Why is it that people think the church has to be passive? That is a lie from the enemy. It is a a manipulative tool of witchcraft that the enemy is trying to use to shut your mouth, to shut the mouths of the church and to keep us dormant and to keep us from occupying the territory that God's called us to take. I believe it's time for the people of God to be reminded there is power in our sound. There is power in your shout. There is power in your praise. There's anointing when you pray. When you, come, when you go to church and you, you come into the house of God, you go there not to be quiet, but to lift your voice and make a joyful noise. It is actually more unbiblical to go to church and sit there and be quiet than it is to go to church and make a joyful no- noise. You've been called to do that. So you've got these churches that are dead and dormant and nothing's going on and they don't know how to make a sound. And you've got people sitting there complaining that the music's too loud or the drums are too loud and the piano and the guitars are too loud and the vocals are too loud and people are clapping. And why is that person jumping? And why is that person dancing? And why is that person lifting their hands? They become so religious intoxicated. They wouldn't know the whole a moving, a moving of the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit knocked them over. I believe the problem that we're having is that we're trying to fight an enemy with the most unsubmitted biblically illiterate church generation we've ever had. We are dealing with people that don't know anything and they don't know what they they don't even know that they don't know anything. And when you don't know what you don't know, you become ignorant to the place, you become a danger to other people. And that's why you've got to know when people are asking you about your faith. You've got to be able to dialogue, you've got to be able to converse. It's not just your testimony, but it's being able to take the word of God and put it out in front of them and say, this is what the word of God means. Well, I'm a good person. Am I still going to heaven? No, you don't go to heaven just because you're a good person. You go to heaven when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You repent and turn from your ways. The Bible says, repent and be baptized. You you, you don't just go to heaven because God thinks you've done a good thing. And we've got to be able to communicate that to people. We've got to be able to talk about sin. We've got to be able to talk about righteousness and holiness. And if we're unwilling to do that, then we are essentially saying to this generation that God has given to the church right now to, to, to reach that we don't care because we are unwilling to speak the truth because we're more afraid of what people are going to think about the church. We're more afraid of people um, um, saying things about us and talking about us and, and you know feeling a certain way than we are in telling them the truth. We're in a time where people, the church, doesn't even come to Sunday morning gathering to be taught anymore. Now, at the end of next month, actually the end of this month, there is an event taking place in, in Boston called Satan Con 2023. And when you go to their website, it is sold out. You cannot buy any more tickets to attend SatanCon. 2023 where there will be sacrifices where there will be séances where there will be there will be all kinds of demonic activity and demonic satanic worship and it is sold out and yet when you look at the american church do you know that the majority of the churches in america are not full on sunday mornings but satancon 2023 can sell out but we're more concerned about the temperature in the room, whether it be hot, too hot or too cold, we're more concerned about the volume of the music and what the decibel levels are set at. While Satan Khan 2023 is being sold out, we're more concerned about whether or not there was coffee in the morning when you got to church because you didn't get up on time to make your your your, your French press and you've got to have your coffee so you can function. But they took the coffee away because you got to church late. We're more concerned about that kind of stuff while. SatanCon 2023 is sold out. When I would go to church 20 years ago, we expected the preacher to challenge us. We expected the preacher to preach until our heart changed. We expected him not to agree with us or just pour oil on the satisfied. We expected to take a few hits along the way. We expected that he would get up in our business. Remember, our churches, which is you and me, are what led to the salvation of our cities but not just any old kind of, you know, church. A church, you know, a a kingdom church is so important. It's vital in your territory. I'm not talking about some seeker-friendly church that won't talk about sin. I'm not talking about some seeker-friendly church that'll get you in and out in 45 minutes and there's no move of God. There's no spiritual awakening. There's no signs and wonders. There's no praying for healing. There's no belief that God can do anything. We're just gonna go through the religious motions and nobody is standing in the gap where God needs his church to get engaged and involved. So it's, you know, a kingdom church, you listening to this Shatterproof podcast right now, God has not called you to where you are in your journey right now by accident. So as long as we reduce praise down to a style, you're going to miss it. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I, I don't like certain styles of music and I don't like certain, uh, you know, the, the ways that the team does music. So I just can't worship to that stuff. So you are missing the engagement of warfare through your praise and through your worship because you don't like the certain songs that the team is doing. As long as you think that that when pastors preach, it's purely emotional, you don't have any idea as to what we're doing. When you think it's just purely emotion with, 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 with what the praise team is doing on the stage, understand as a pastor, we don't preach because our emotion tells us to do it. We do it because we have learned in the middle of trouble that when you see me shout, it probably means I'm in some kind of warfare and I'm trying to drive a point home. I mean, I will preach so hard. I got veins popping out of my neck, popping out of my head. I'm shouting and I'm preaching the word of God as hard as I can because I'm getting this point across with passion, with, with power, with authority. And I've learned not to let the devil get in the way because I've been walking with God long enough now to know that worrying is a waste of time. I don't really care if somebody likes my preaching style or not. I'm going to deliver it the way God's called me to deliver it with the personality and the, and, and, and the mantle that he's put upon my life. Because before it's over, God's going to turn it around. And there's nothing that the devil can do to me that God won't work out for me if I'll just do what he's called me to do and be obedient. When I look out over America, I realize that God is testing the church to see if he can trust us with the souls that he wants to send us. In my travels over the years, I'm convinced that much of the church is failing the test and and they're praying for an awakening and a revival, but don't realize they're being tested. And the hardest test to pass is the one that you don't know you are in. I'm watching people lose their ability to minister to people because they've made themselves a God out of their own opinions. For some reason, we think that our opinions weigh more than the word of God, because we look at everything the word of God says like a democracy, like we get to choose and vote on what we believe and what we don't believe. You either believe it all or you don't. You believe the word of God is infallible or you don't. You trust the word of God or you don't. We don't get to pick and choose what we like and what we don't like based on our opinions. And people don't know how to put their opinions on the altar. So you have to say everything you want to say. You got to post everything you want to post, not realizing that you're actually hurting your ability to minister to other people because you made a God out of your opinion. So we are distracted. So many, so, so many people are distracted today because they don't know what the real test is. Matthew 25 talks about the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. While the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight, there was a shout, behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. It says those that were ready. It finishes in this passage of scripture in Matthew 25 by saying later, the other versions also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Here's why I believe the church is failing the test is that because we have churches that don't have any oil and now the situation is on us and it's too late for a lot of people to play catch up because the situations of our land have come upon us and we are not prepared, we're not ready. So now you're out there scrambling, trying to fix stuff now. Do you know how much deliverance and demonic principalities and powers need to be challenged with the Word of God so that we, people can experience full deliverance? And we've got churches that don't even understand the power of deliverance. They don't even go after the demonic influence in people's lives because they cannot handle that element of the spiritual realm. So we have churches that haven't dealt with social justice issues in years. And you know what else? They haven't dealt with the devil. They haven't dealt with sin. They haven't dealt with poverty, haven't dealt with all of these things that are up in our culture. And now they're scrambling. How do I respond to the whole LGBTQI plus uh, issue? How do I respond to transgenderism? How do I respond to, to homosexuality? What do we do? There's pastors that are really confused. There's pastors that are compromising the gospel so that they don't get any arrows thrown at them. There are are pastors that that are compromising the gospel just so they can be socially acceptable. Do you know there are pastors that cannot challenge their churches? They cannot speak into an atmosphere. And any spirit that the church does not defeat inside the building, it has no right to speak outside the building. Our problem, I believe, is that we haven't gotten into the hearts of most of the church, how important community is. An apostolic ministry at certain levels will produce community. And the Bible says to mark those that cause division among you. Romans 16, 17 says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. So God has called us that when we see a gap, we are supposed to stand in it. And yes, that's going to take Prayer, praise, it's going to take the word to keep you rooted. It's going to cause you to develop a team of intercessors who will pray for you and over your life and over your calling and over the mantle that you have. We're not supposed to make the gap bigger. We're supposed to stand in it. It doesn't mean that we don't speak the truth or don't speak about what's in front of us, but that our heart's motivation is different than what is happening outside because we're being tested we're being tested to see that if we have the revival that we we are praying for can we steward over the people that god wants to send our way so when we see a gap we have to stand in it if god were to send you a group of people who were involved in transgenderism and homosexuality and they were to walk into your church would you still preach the word of god would your pastor still preach the word of God uncompromised, not worrying whether or not those people who walked in would be offended? We've got to preach the word of God regardless of the cultural pressures. We've got to preach the the, the kingdom uncompromised if we are going to see hearts and lives changed. So I think there are three words we have to deal with so we can pass this test. And the first word is reconciliation. Most of the church fails at reconciliation. Romans 5.10 says, For if we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is one person reconciliation, which means only one has to move because you and God were not co-enemies. God was never your enemy. We were the enemies of God. Therefore, when he saw a gap, come on, he stood in it. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So I believe the church has been failing at this because we don't know how to reconcile. If you've been in church for any any period of time, like I have, I've grown up in church the church does not do a great job at reconciliation. We do a great job at talking about people and gossiping about people and throwing daggers and throwing all kinds of stuff at somebody because you know, people are at odds with each other or look at what so-and-so wore or did you hear what so-and-so said or I heard so-and-so's marriage is in trouble or so-and-so's kids are going crazy. We do a great job at talking about everybody else. We do a horrible job as a church at reconciliation. And what's the deal with people washing each other's feet and then going right back into their corner? I, you know, I've, I've never been, when I was in Orlando, Florida, I, I was never invited in, in, in over 20 years of living in Orlando to a racial, reconcilia, a ra, a racial reconciliation meeting into that, into that city. You know where groups come together and pastors come together and get people to talk and then they leave and go back to whatever they do. And I wondered why I was never invited to one of those meetings. And I figured it out because when those people get together, it looks like uh, it looks like a, a, a multicultural gathering. It looks like the you know the, when you've got people from different races and different backgrounds and different cultures and different creeds inside your church, that's what the kingdom is supposed to look like. I'm amazed that when I see some churches that are so vanilla or they're so dark and they're, you know, they're not mixed. It's like, you know, when people say, you know, yeah, I used to go to a black church. what does that even mean? Why are we segregating our churches by by color? Why are we segregating uh, the kingdom of God based on culture and based on nationalities and based on ethnicities? When, when you said yes to Jesus and I said yes to Jesus, we, we, we took the same blood. We, we, we took the same blood transfusion and we became a part of the same family. I don't care if you're red, green, yellow, purple, black, white, yellow, orange. I don't care what color you are. We're a part of the same family. Reconciliation must happen to bridge the gap. That's why we've got to go after these cultural narratives that whites hate blacks and blacks hate whites and whites hate... Hispanics and Hispanics hate whites, and all of this division that the culture creates, the church has got to be the peace. The church has got to be the reconciliation in that, uh, in in this element, in that gap of culture. Another word is uh, restoration. The church sometimes, I believe, fails at the concept of restoration. Every group in the world has a plan for their wounded, for the wounded people, except the church. And every time I watch a baseball game, I know that there will be doctors and trainers in the dugout in case somebody needs medical attention. The closest thing we do is when you go to church and there's a nurse, you know, and there's a nurse in the building, every army has a plan for its wounded. We have a VA administration, but in the church, if somebody is wounded, we often discard them. We do a lot of warfare talk and then act surprised when somebody gets hurt. And so we don't always do good because we're trying so desperately to make sure that the Pharisees among us are happy. The Pharisees want to make sure that they are never tainted by somebody else's problems. You know, every time Jesus was trying to minister restoration to people, the Pharisees always show up. Did you notice they always show up in strange places at the weirdest times? I mean, how does that happen? Jesus comes into Jerusalem and, 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 and all the people are praising and the Pharisees say, tell them to calm down. Remember, Jesus is walking with his guys through a cornfield and they start eating corn on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees, like, you know, where are these people coming from? In the middle of a cornfield? Where are these Pharisees coming from? Where are these, you know, they're hanging out in cornfields and they, they bring unto Jesus a woman. You know the story, caught in the very act of adultery. I mean, these brothers need some Counseling. The Pharisees are always there with rocks in hand, almost joyful. You ever, you ever met some, you ever met a Christian in church to where they're almost excited to point out somebody's flaws? And they're like, the law says we get to stone her. And then they get mad that Jesus went and ate at somebody else's house. How come you're not going to eat at our house? Well, because he wants to have a good time, right? Right? This this whole idea that because you're a Christian, you can't have a good time. You can't enjoy life. I, I just can't get this religious mindset that says Christians have to be doormats and culture just walks all over them. And Christians have to be these boring people that cannot have a good time. And if you have a good time, it's somehow sin, right? Pharisees, we always have to explain to them that we aren't trying to say anything goes. And see, when you're trying to restore anybody that's hurt, wounded, or or did it to themselves or whatever the situation is, somewhere in our lives we have to say we are tired of seeing the devil pick off our brothers and sisters and we're going to stand in the gap on their behalf. I'm not going to sit by and every time God is ready to send us a move and, and and see Satan knows that we will cannibalize our own. Satan knows that the church is really good at going after their own. So when God's about to move, you know, all the enemy's got to do is pick off people in positions of authority and we will never have the move that we want or desire because the enemy knows we have no plan for restoration. It's got to change. So, Let me me just say something about grace for a minute. Grace is not God overlooking something. Grace is God staring it in the face and saying, I'm coming in there after you. Grace is God rolling up his sleeves. Grace is David snatching a lamb out of the lion's mouth. Grace is not passive. So your definition of grace could put God in a passive role of just looking the other way when Grace is God looking it right in the face and saying he's still coming in there after you. He's not scared of the devil. He's not scared of your problem. He's not scared of your situation. He is coming in there after you. And that's why Galatians 6, if you know this passage of scripture, the Bible says, even if one is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. Such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself that you too will not be tempted. If a brother is caught in a sin, if you're truly spiritual, that you should go to him and quietly set them back on track without any feeling of superiority. So there's protocol. Accountabilities, all the things that go with it, but we don't seem to be good at restoring. And in my personal journey, I've learned that everybody needs a little restoration because some of the ones that never say amen should be jumping and running. And it might be because you've backslid, but it just hasn't made the headlines yet. But people, people backsliding right there in the church, but God who is rich in mercy came and found your hiding place and pulled you back in. And he did it so smoothly that nobody ever knew. And people say, well, pastor, I don't understand how people can get saved. And they go back to the club because they have not realized yet along the journey, because it's a journey. You're saved, but then you it, it, you are on a journey of understanding what the kingdom means now. You are on a journey to understand that that club atmosphere is no longer conducive for the spirit atmosphere that, that God desires for you to live in. And so people can be saved and still go to the club until God changes their heart enough and God gets a hold of their life enough to be able to say, I'm no longer going to be in that atmosphere. And we cannot sit there as the people of God and judge what we see outwardly when God is doing the work inwardly. We do a great job at judging what we see outwardly, not realizing that God is doing a work inwardly. So we have what I would call the assassins of the prodigals. And I know churches that if you're a prodigal, they send people to the pig pen to take you out. Do you know that it never occurred to the prodigal that he never needed to deal with the other brother? He never said, I will go talk to my brother and see if we can make it right with dad. He always said, I will arise and go to my father's house, expecting that if the father made a ruling that his brother should just be happy about it, only to find out that when he was restored, that his father didn't whoop him. His father didn't treat him poorly. See, we don't mind restoring people as long as we can beat them down for a little while beforehand. We love you. Bam, don't do that. Come here, bam. Am I restored yet? No, we hit him again. Come here, Jesus loves you. You have a purpose. We hit him again. And the father's position was to throw a party and celebrate and restore, only to find out the other brothers in the backyard refusing to come in. He's mad and upset. We cannot fail this test of restoration. We cannot fail the test of reconciliation. There's a lot of people in this culture right now that have gone through church hurt and they need to be reconciled. They need to go through restoration. There's a lot of people in this culture that have experienced a a level of faith, but because of being talked about in church or because of being scoffed at or because of being treated inappropriately. They don't come to church anymore. They're not walking with God anymore. And we have got to be that representative of the heart of God for reconciliation and restoration. The last word I've got for you is intercession. If you find a gap, stand in it. Sinners don't often intercede for themselves. Sinners on occasion, I know this is going to be mind-blowing, sinners on occasion sin. So if our cities are going to be one, somebody's got to stand in the gap, somebody prayed for you when you couldn't pray for yourself somebody believed for you when you didn't know how to believe in yourself and i don't know what people have told you but you can get enough bad news in life that you get knocked down and don't know what prayer to pray or what scripture to quote and you need somebody that's why those that are strong must bear the infirmities of the weak. and sooner or later you're going to need somebody to stand in the gap for you we've got people in our life right now that we're praying and believing For that the next 30 days are just going to be incredible, that God's going to show up and move mightily in their life. So we're fasting and we're praying and we're worshiping and we're honoring God, believing for a breakthrough in their life. You need somebody. And that's why those that are strong must bear those infirmities of the weak. And sooner or later, you're going to need somebody to stand in that gap. So I asked myself, should someone that I love or a friend, should they be in dire circumstances? Sin issues or whatever it may be, and God answers my prayers, and they get up and they show up at church. For example, what kind of church do I want them to show up in? I want them to be in a place where somebody understands intercession. I want them to be in a place where the pastor and the the, the leadership of that church is preaching the word of God with truth, with integrity, with character. That they are preaching an infallible word of God. That they are not preaching a, a, a gospel that's been compromised by culture. I want them to understand that many can become one. The Bible says something very peculiar about Aaron in Numbers. It, it says, Then Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly. For behold, the plague had begun among the people, so he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. He took his stand between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. Until the plague was checked, this is the ministry of intercession, to stand in the gap between the dead and and the living until the plague is stopped. Job, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them, uh, the number of them all. For Job said, "Perhaps my sons have sinned and God cursed, and cursed God in their hearts." Thus Job did continually. Job said. I'm going to be their intercessor because I don't know what they really might be up to. They said they were going to go to the game, but it just might be that they went some other place. Come on, parents. They said they were staying over at their friend's house, but I'm just not sure. They said their phone died and that's why they didn't answer. They said they were just their friends. They said it wasn't their drugs. They were just holding them. It just might be that they have sinned in their hearts to I'm going to stand in the gap. And I'm going to put some seed in the ground with their name on it and call their name out and declare that the devil cannot have them because God said they belong to me and I am an intercessor. And I think many, many parents in this culture understand the importance of parental intercession over your children, that you lay hands on them, that you plead the blood of Jesus over their life, that you, you release angels out over their life. You are speaking the word of God and giving angels something to move on over your children and over your family. We are being tested to find out if we can be trusted with the souls of people in our generation. Can we have a spirit of restoration? Because other people are watching how we treat one another. We can preach the word of God and live out the word of God with truth and honesty in the midst of a culture that is completely disregarded the the things of God right now. They're watching to see how we deal with people who have different opinions than we do, different backgrounds than us. And, and, and you're posting on Twitter how much you hate this and, and how, how much you hate that. And, and then on Facebook, how much you love Jesus. But, but, but many people are faking it and it's not in your heart. But if it ever gets in your heart, you're going to turn into a reconciler. You'll be a restorer. You'll be an intercessor. Because when you leave your church on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, whenever you have church, you will remember that God has called you to stand in the gap. And I pray that whatever churches you are in, the pastor is challenging you and equipping you and encouraging you to go and stand in the gap. And when God allows you to see into the life of someone else, they are not the ones being tested. You are. There has to be a road home for the prodigals. There has to be a way back home for the lost sons and the lost daughters. There has to be a way of restoration. There has to be help in the house. It doesn't mean that you're going to get it right every single time but you've got to be a representative of hope. And I believe that whatever house you're in, whatever place you call home for your church, that it's a house of reconciliation. It's a house of restoration. It's a house of intercession. I want to affirm to you that I believe there's an anointing upon your life and upon my life and upon the people of God. And I pray that whatever the territory is that God has given you, that it would increase. I pray that it would increase through your words and through your actions It is not an accident or something to do, but I declare that God is placing upon you a spirit of intercession and a spirit of restoration and a spirit of reconciliation. And I declare over your life that it will increase. This generation depends on you and I and the people of God standing in the gap. This generation depends on you and I getting on our knees and crying out to God. You serve a God that isn't afraid of demonic principalities and powers. He isn't as scared of the problems in this culture. He's about to send somebody into the fire. He's sending you. He's sending me. You've got to be a water walker. You've got to step out in faith. You've got to be a giant killer. You've got to be a demon slayer. You've got to be a lion maimer. I come from people that pray until the place they stand is shaking. They shout until the walls come down mountain movers, water walkers. It's in our blood. It's in our DNA. So as a child of the most high God, if you're having a problem, have a little talk with Jesus. Because the same God that will get down in the dirt to right the offense of an adulterous woman is the same God that came finding your hiding place. You know God came to save you. I'm telling you right now that when you see a gap, it's time to stand in it. God will make you a bridge builder, He'll make you someone that can reconcile. He'll make you someone that can make a way out of no way. He'll make you an answer to somebody's prayer. He'll turn you into somebody who's on fire, full of oil, full of peace, that your cage can't be rattled. You can't drive, you can't be driven crazy. And you're going to declare and decree that the devil has already lost And you're going to look at your children and say, devil, get your hands off my kids, get your hands off my money, get your hands off my city, get your hands off my church, get your hands off my pastors, loose me and let me go. And it's the grace of God that allows you and I to have another day to extend the territory and expand the territory that he's called called us to occupy until he comes. We cannot sit by and look at all of these gaps in our culture and not be an answer. To fill in the gap and be a reconciler and a restorer and an object of grace and mercy in this culture that God's called us to be. I'm excited. I believe that this is one of the greatest generations to be alive in. And I know when you look around and you watch the news, you can think it's one of the darkest generations to be in. And it's pretty dark. It's pretty dark. But you and I have been called to be a lighthouse, a city set up on a hill. It cannot be hidden. Don't hide your light. Don't hide your testimony. Allow God to use you. Allow God to put you in a place in the middle of a gap so that you can fill it. I love you. I'm praying for you. I am believing that God will open doors that no man can open over your life and close doors that no man can close. I pray that God would favor you, that he would bless you, that his anointing would fall upon you and you would experience the power of God like never before. I'm praying for you. Remember, God has made you shadow-proof.